0: Okay, this morning's July 10th, it's Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is census. Uh, census is in C-E-N-S-U-S. Now, when somebody says that the word census, what immediately comes to mind? Who, who wants to jump out there and try to define it? You started a census. The number of people in a program. No, yeah, census, yeah, we hear the word <laughs> census and When your job in sales is to populate a physical therapy clinic, they tell you, well, our census is low if there's not enough people. Basically, it's the number of people. From a governmental standpoint, we have census every so often. Was it every 10 years? And they count the number of people that are in the country that are willing participants of the census. In ancient times, census was something else altogether. I mean, similar. But why would you count the people in your country if you were a king in ancient times? Taxes. Taxes. Pop understands it. He's been around a while. He knows that taxes and death are the two certain things, right? Well, in Roman times, if you took a census, it's because you wouldn't know how many people are supposed to be paying you taxes. Well, with that in mind, census is going to be one of our topics this morning. We'll look at it biblically. But... I have been studying, and you all know last week's message, Messianic Miracles, came out of this Hebraic root study that I kind of embarked upon. And I've been really fortunate; found a couple books that are semester courses that somebody was kind enough to compile and let you read in a week. Uh, I love that. Thank thank God that we live in an age where the printing press is available and you can download them. <laughs> so, uh, who is here for Messianic Miracles? Most of you were here. Okay. One of the things that we're learning is that the, the, the Bible is a Hebraic book. It's written by Jews and, for the most part, to Jews. Most of the Bible was written and addressed to a Jewish population. Jesus, the Word of God incarnate, was presented to us as the image of God, as the visible image of the invisible God in a particular setting, at a particular time, for a reason. That's because the culture and the setting was built in such a way that all of it would typify uh, attributes of God, would speak about God to us from even the very culture. Well, if we have a Hebrew Lord and we have a Hebrew book and a Hebrew culture that it is set in, it would behoove us at the very least to learn a little bit about it, wouldn't it? A Jew's life centers, I'm speaking about Jews in the past, but also Jews in the present, around the Torah. Who knows what the word Torah means? Law. That's what we're taught that it means. But there's a problem. Have you ever been discussing something with someone and found out that a particular term that you were using meant something different to them? Well, when we take the word English, in English, law, Law has a a negative connotation to it in some regards. When you think of a law, you think of something that is written that says what you cannot do. Isn't that right? Name a law. Somebody, name a law. No, name a law in, in our country. In the 80s, we all protested a law. There was a song sung about it, I Can't Drive. Oh, wow. Nobody listened to the big hair bands like I did. 55. There was a national speed limit. That was a law. What did it tell you? You cannot drive any faster than this or there will be a consequence. So, to us, when we think of law, we think of something that you can't do or there's a consequence. There's a problem though. This is not how Jews think of law. Not at all. In fact, their word for law is much closer to our word for instruction. Now, If I give you instructions, that doesn't necessarily imply something that you can't do in a consequence, does it? No, it it implies instructions. When a Jew says Torah, when they think about the law of God, they are thinking about God's instructions not for how you shouldn't live, but for how you should live. Do you understand the difference? So many times when we read the New Testament with our Greek mindset. Coming from the word nomos, which is the one Greek word for law. And by the way, Jesus may have spoken Greek, but He was from a Hebrew culture. The Hebrew culture for, uh, and thought around law was instruction, something positive. The Greeks were just like us. We're descendants from them in thought. Their word for law had more of a negative connotation. It was nomos, and it had to do with, you do this, and there'll be a penalty. So we have a divergence in thoughts when we're speaking about the exact same word. Well, that combined with some things that Paul has said. Because the first century church was faced with some problems. The first century church was basically faced with the problem of, in being obedient to God, how much of our law is applicable? How much of God's instruction is applicable to a Gentile who comes in or to a believing Jew? And so Paul had to address that difficult circumstance. And the triumph of Paul's ministry was the statement, was the understanding that people that had never been under God's instruction, under His law before, not as a nation, not corporately, did not have to do anything other than fall in love with Jesus. That was the triumph of his ministry. There should be no burdens placed upon them of any kind. But that doesn't at all mean that God's, Instruction for us was bad in some kind of way. If we say that the law was against us, if we say that, and for a moment we we'll just assume that we're Jews or whatever you want. The us here will make that pronoun be us. If we say that the law was against us, what does that imply? Because the Bible says that the law was against us. I mean, in a manner of speaking. What does that mean? Does that mean that the instructions God gave you were somehow harmful? That they were unspiritual or bad? Paul answers the question in Romans 7, and it is by no means. It's not that the law is unspiritual or bad. It's that we are unspiritual and bad. So God's instructions in many ways point out our inadequacies. As you get closer to Jesus in Christianity, you Gentiles, me a Gentile, never really having any knowledge of the law, As you get closer to Him, His Spirit begins to reveal things to you that show you areas that are not good in your life, right? Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. In fact, that teaches you how to walk, doesn't it? The law that God gave, the Torah, was intended to do the very same thing. The letter of it might bring you death. If you do this, you'll die. But the Spirit of it was intended to bring you life. say, well, Eric, why are you doing all this? I thought we were talking on census today and not on law. We'll probably talk about law a little bit in every message for a while. But it's because we need to have a right understanding of law and watch. It's kind of like the Hebraic roots that I've been teaching about. Did it add something to your understanding to know about those four messianic miracles? Did it add something to your understanding when I told you that when the Bible said not to announce with trumpets your gifts given, but to do it in secret and God would reward you in secret? Did it... it, enrich your understanding at all all, to find out that the coffer boxes were shaped like trumpets and when you drop coins in it it would be loud understanding the background and the thought is essential to understanding the scripture so let me read you a couple things that would shape a hebrew's thought about law because you know what i think sometimes we've taken this greek mindset and we want to throw this where the idea comes from the Marcion heresy comes from that the Old Testament is wrong, bad, and should be thrown out. Okay? This is where the idea... And many of us don't believe that, but in practice, we do. We'll read in the Old Testament a little bit, but we feel like the main focus of the Bible should be New Testament. And we divide it into two categories. It is all God's instruction, and in a Jew's mind, it would all be God's law, as a Jew would think about it. The function of the law... Remember Jews think functionally? Was to instruct. That was the function of the law. So turn with me to Psalm nineteen. To get to Psalms, you'll turn to the middle of your Bible. To get to Psalm nineteen, if you happen to have a Thompson chain, you would need to be on page six thirteen. Anybody know how many laws there were? How many laws in the Mosaic covenant? Psalm 19 is on what page? Oh, wow, that happens to be the same number of laws that are in the Mosaic Covenant. That's just a little coincidence that I thought I would point out for you. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom, coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's instruction, God's law, will revive your soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord will revive you, and it will make you wise. The precepts, notice how he uses these words almost interchangeably, precepts and law. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The law of the Lord will give you joy. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. For the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances, now we are calling laws and precepts ordinances, of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Now you've sang this song forever. Lord, you are what? more? You are more costly than gold. Even pure gold, right? More precious than silver, more costly than gold. And then the little echo that people sing is pure gold, right? The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and are sweeter than honey, the honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Without reading the rest of that, is it fair to say that at least in this psalm, the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, is portrayed as something that is good and essential to your life. It will revive you. It will warn you. It will enlighten you. It will protect you. It will make you wise. This is the attitude that the Jews take towards the Torah and it's the attitude that the Christians ought to take towards the Torah. When you read the New Testament and you see things that are written that seem to be contrary to that point of view, I would offer to you that it has more to do with a misuse of the law The law was never a system for obtaining righteousness. It was never a system of legalistic works to obtain righteousness. Deuteronomy 10 tells us that. David tells us that. Hosea tells us that. They said, you didn't desire sacrifice, Lord, but you desired mercy. What does God require of us, Micah says? To walk humbly, to act justly, to love mercy. Uh, There's a Keith Green song that speaks of a psalm and it says obedience is better than sacrifice the letter of the law might have brought you death if you disobeyed it but the spirit with which this was given the instruction that god gave you was intended to show you how you should live as christians we're not outside of that part of god's law this is why paul said to a jew i became a jew to those that are under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I'm not under the law, but I'm not free from God's law, He said. In other words, there is no penalty for us. God is with us. His Spirit is in us. He's empowering us. We're not looking at a code to say, Oh, I messed up today. I've got to go kill a lamb. Jesus has already done all of that for us. But, God's law is still instruction for us. today, In studying census, I will show you one of the ways that God's law is instruction for you. In the Old Testament, you can find every principle that was written about in the New concealed. It's there. It's just not always obvious. So you might say that within the Old Testament, the New Testament lies concealed. Then what is the New Testament? It's the Old Testament revealed. So can you throw one away? Of course not. And you know this, but it's a part of a revolution in our thinking that we need to put into practice because the church world does not have this right. Psalm 37, verse 30. Y'all don't have to turn there, but you can. It says, The mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks what is just. The law of his God is in his heart, and his feet do not slip. You want to be a righteous man? God's instruction must be in your heart. It's funny, if I tell you... That the law is good. That the law was meant to bring you life. Would you recoil a little bit? Because we know that Paul in the book of Galatians fervently fought against a returning to a legalistic lifestyle. We know in the book of Romans, Paul one time even said that Jesus was the end of the law. He was speaking about, and in all of those systems, he's the end of the discussion about this being a system for righteousness. It wasn't. It was to show you how to live. The blood of bulls and goats never really cleansed anybody. It taught people how to live and what to expect. This is why nobody ever entered into the presence of God until Jesus made a sacrifice for them. That's a whole other teaching that I don't want to get into now, but suffice it to say that to a Jew, the law was very important. It shaped their lives. It taught them how to live. And we might learn something from that, being a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Didn't Peter call us that? Who was that first set of them? That's why Romans 11 says, you are a co-heir with them, not a replacement for them, not a substitute, not the new Jew. You're a co-heir with Israel. Psalm 40 says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Burn offerings and a sin offering you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in your scroll. Does anybody know who those words are written about? The New Testament tells us those words are written about Jesus. Look at verse 8. I desired to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. Jesus was a Hebrew. And God's law was written in His heart. So when Jesus taught... What else do you know about somebody's heart? I've taught about this a lot. What is in your heart finds its way out of your mouth, doesn't it? So when Jesus spoke, what He was doing was expressing the truth about the law. We're going to see that today in the principle of the census. But before we get there, I wanted to cover for you the law. And before we go any further with the law, because this is a teaching that will have to encompass Romans, it will have to encompass some other things, I want you to get two key chapters out of the Bible, okay? Two key chapters. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel's going to be harder for some of you to find, so I'll give you a page number. From where you are, you'll need to turn to the right, though. And the page you're looking for is 962 in the Thompson chain. These, uh, these two chapters are chapters that are familiar to Christians, We're going to read out of Ezekiel and we're going to read out of Jeremiah. And we tend to think about them as new covenant, new things. I would express that what they really are teaching you is how to relate to what we call the Old Covenant. But let me start with Ezekiel 36 and we'll see if it gets clear. Start in verse 22. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things but for the sake of My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. The fact that God's people got scattered all over the planet, the fact that they were mistreated all over the planet and everywhere was something that brought offense to God's name. People would say, Oh, these are God's people, and yet they're scattered out all over the place. They're picked on everywhere they go. And notice He said, It's for My sake that I'm going to do this. Why does God love Israel? He just does. He decided to do something for His name's sake, not because they were special. And yet we regard them as special because we owe them a debt, and Paul taught us that. I will show the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the names you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I show Myself holy through you, before the eyes, When will all of the nations see that God is great? When God shows Himself holy through the Jewish people. Ezekiel 36 says that. But what's that have to do with the law? Keep reading. For I will take you out of the nations. Is He doing that? I will gather you from all the countries and bringing you back into your own land. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody in here. But was there anybody whose lifetime saw the beginning of this in here? Think about that. This is a prophecy that is written during the Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C. That says, I will take you out of the nations and bring you back into your own land. And he's going to say some things that will happen during that time. I'm going to bring you back into your own land and I'm going to do this because the nations will see how great I am when I show myself holy through you. Friends, that's happening in our lifetimes. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and will move you to follow My decrees and be careful to keep all My laws. He goes on to say they'll never be removed from the land all kinds. Why did God put His Spirit, capital S, in them, in this prophecy? To move them to be able to keep the law. This is why Paul says that we Gentiles who don't have the law By the Spirit, do the very things required in the law. The Spirit of God will lead you into a lifestyle that causes you to live in conformity with God's instruction. But that doesn't mean that you don't read what His instructions were. It doesn't mean that you don't know what the law is. His Spirit will show you how to keep it. This is why Jesus says, You've heard it said! Don't look at a woman. I'm sorry, don't commit adultery with a woman. Where did they hear that said? It was written in the law, God's instructions on how they should live. Jesus said, but I tell you, don't look at her with lust in your heart or you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Now, what is that? That is a written command that taught them that they shouldn't do something bad. And that is the Spirit of God speaking through Jesus, showing them how to apply that command. The Spirit elevates you to a place not just to follow a letter that can bring you death, but to a place that will truly bring you life. Did you see in Ezekiel 36, he said he would give them the Spirit so that they could keep the law, basically, and that he would show himself holy through them before the nations? This is why Paul says that when those that were unbelieving Jews were cut off from the olive tree that is theirs are grafted back in again, it will be life from the dead. There will be such a revival that the whole world will see and partake in. And it will culminate in a resurrection. Jeremiah 31 something that everybody in here probably knows, huh? And I promise I haven't forgotten about the census. You'll need to make a left to go to Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, we're going to start in verse 10. Both Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 have this thing. Scattered, gathered, and redeemed. Y'all want to say that with me? Scattered, gathered, and redeemed. Every once in a while I come up with these little phrases and I do that so you'll remember Remember I told you just before we started the CD about the smile on your face? Wear a smile on your face until it appears in your heart? Well, scattered, gathered, and redeemed is a theme throughout the prophets. Because God's people would be scattered all over the globe, they would be gathered all over the globe, and then they would be redeemed. Ezekiel 36 is about that, and so is Jeremiah 31. Starting in verse 10. This is on page 877. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from a hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. He goes on down to say He's going to turn their mourning into gladness. They're ashes into joyful things. Skip down to verse 31. See if this passage is not very familiar with you. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke My covenant. My covenant though I was a husband to them. What was wrong with the first covenant? What did He say was wrong with it right there? They broke it. Did that mean that the promises given in it, the instructions given in it were bad? No, what was wrong was they didn't walk according to God's instruction. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put My law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be My people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. And He goes on to say all kinds of things, but what I want you to get is this idea that you have to take into the message, the census, for this to really resonate with you is that the law or instruction of God is good. That it's shaped the whole Jewish mindset in life. And that as Christians, it should still shape our mindset in life, but the Spirit is what enables us to be obedient to God, not uh, being compliant with some written code. The Spirit shows us how to live according to God's instruction. But that God's desire was that this get on their hearts. You remember God said in the book of Deuteronomy, bind these words of the law I give you on your hands, bind them on your head, put them on your doorpost, meditate on them day and night. Well, what is one way to do that? It's literally to write it on leather, bind it on your hands, put it in a box in leather, and put it on your head, and they do that. Jews do that. Is that wrong? No. That's literally what God said to do But the spirit behind the law would tell you, now you can do that and that's great. That says to everybody what you want. But what I really want is it in your mind and on your hearts for it to govern the actions of your hands and the words of your mouth. That's the difference between the letter and the life. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, in addition to needing to understand the law and wanting our hearts for it to be written on our hearts and understanding that it's important for us to read and be instructed by it because it's God's instruction... In addition to that, you also have to know some cultural things. It's my job as a pastor to begin to tell you about the cultural things. So I'm doing that as I learn them. Let me tell you, uh, turn to Matthew 5. I'm going to give you two cultural principles that will bring clearer to you, more light, more revelation into some Scripture. Now, as I told you in Messianic Miracles, and I told you in Roots and the Olive Tree and zeet Zit and the biblical meal and all the things that I do that teach on Jewish roots I am not trying to give you an esoteric interpretation of scripture I'm not saying that there's one little culture on the planet although it's not a little culture and I don't mean to belittle it that is the only one that can properly interpret the word the spirit will show you the right interpretation but it surely helps to empower yourself with the knowledge of biblical times and things doesn't it God will protect you but it doesn't hurt to lock your door Right? Same kind of principle here. Y'all in Matthew 5? Look at verse 27. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we've covered that, right? You understand. Verse 29, though. If your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go down into hell. Have you never had a problem with that Scripture? Be honest. I mean, is there nobody in here that... I know? It must be difficult for you to all look at me today and not have any lust in your heart. <laughs> Obviously, we've not applied this literally or at least somebody in here, I guess I'd be the only one, would be missing an eyeball, right? So what on earth is that? And how could Jesus say something like this? Well, it surely helps to know that in first century Judaism, there was a common... Teaching method. You know how we make fun of three points in a poem sometimes in here? I usually do that off CD, but I, I make fun of the way that preachers begin with a joke. Then they remind them of a story, right? And you go through this long narrative, then they introduce three points, and then the sermon's over. You know? And that's kind of something that's been taught to them. It's a method. And this morning, all over Houston... Behind little wooden pulpits with steeples and stained glass and all those things, there are pastors following that exact format. And it's not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's something that's normal. Well, in Jesus' day there was a principle. And the principle was called Call the Homer. K-A-L hyphen V-E hyphen C H O M E R. Call the Homer. This meant the lighter. And the heavier. It was a method of teaching. And what they were saying is, this would be sin if you did A. But if you did B, that would be a much greater sin. And it followed that format. First the light, then the heavy, to emphasize the point. And what Jesus is saying about this eyeball and about uh, entering into hell, he's saying, it'd be a sin for you to tear out your eye, but it'd be a much greater sin for you to keep your eye and go to hell. It is a sin to look at a woman lustfully. It's a much greater sin to actually commit it. This principle, what He's teaching... In fact, at another place in the Bible, NIV's kind of heard us here, and I love NIV. Look at Matthew 23. He actually says it, and it helps, because those of us that are not familiar with the culture, Matthew 23, verse 23. "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Anybody that's a King James advocate in here, this is probably one of the only times in the world I'd give you an endorsement. King James, New American Standard, most other translations don't say the more important matters. They say it like this. You've neglected, or I'm sorry, you give your your mint, your cumin, and your dill. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. If anybody hasn't amplified, it probably says that too. In other words, it was a light thing. The smallest thing you should do is give your mint, your cumin, and your dill. But the more important thing, the weightier or the heavier thing that you were supposed to do was to love justice and mercy. That was the point of God's instruction. This is another time in which Jesus was obviously teaching using this format. Here's the light and here's the heavy. Now doesn't that make a little more sense than how do you deal with gouge out your eye and throw it away rather than go to hell with two eyes? Doesn't that, doesn't that help enliven it, son? Uh, it didn't change the meaning. You knew what He was saying all along. But now you know why He said it the way that He did. If you're like me, that, that adds something to you. I'm trying to introduce a few of those every message. You want to hear one more? Okay, one more in Matthew 6. Here's another one that has puzzled me for years. Now, maybe you guys look at these and understand them perfectly immediately. I don't. Sometimes I have to meditate on a Scripture for a long time. Sometimes the Spirit shows me what it means long before I really understand intellectually what it means. I can just kind of feel it. That's because God has to work around my... Gentile predisposition. This is not written in a culture for me, in my native culture. It's foreign to me. So I can adapt it to my culture, which is what most churches do and it's wrong, or I can adapt myself. (laughs) I can adapt... That's the girls that are on their way. They're lost. Um, I can adapt my... (laughs) I've lost my train of thought. I can either adapt the Bible and its culture to me, or I can choose... To try to step back into its culture and its design, wouldn't that make more sense? When NIV translated that, more important matters of the law in Matthew twenty-three twenty-three, is that wrong? That's exactly what it meant, isn't it? This is more important than that. The light and the heavy. But in translating it into something that is more culturally accepted for us, we miss the culture that it was actually given in and that principle, don't we? I'm not saying NIV's wrong. I love it. I. Preach out of it all of the time, but I'm just telling you that's two schools of thought there. Here's one more. In Matthew 6, and then we're going to get to census. <laughs> Y'all think I've forgotten about census? I, problem, I promise the law and the culture both will tie into census. In fact, it'll make you understand it, and you will know why something said in the New Testament that you did not understand or you understood before, but now it's just richer. Okay, in Matthew 6, before we get to census, we see in verse 19 something. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to know I, I hadn't thought about that commercial where a guy was a brain surgeon. You know, you'd have to be a rocket scientist to fix this copier. The guy says, well, actually, I am a rocket scientist and I can't fix it. You don't have to be brilliant to understand. He's saying, don't put value in temporal things. You, you need to put your value in spiritual things, right? Then verse 22, "...the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light within you is darkness, how great will that darkness be? Isn't it kind of a mystery how we go from talking about treasure in heaven versus on earth to eyes being light of your body? I mean, we have been trained to look at this in verses, right? And you take one verse and read it maybe as a standalone. But this was not written in verses, this was written as a narrative. For you to read, wouldn't you think it was strange if I was talking to you? Wouldn't you be a little bit bum-fuzzled, if you will? If I was talking to you and I said, Hey, you need to put your treasure in heaven, not up treasure on earth. Your eyes are the light of your body. If your eyes are good, then your body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, then how dark will your darkness be? Wouldn't you just look at me kind of confused? But we read that and just kind of keep going, don't think much about it. The context before it was what? No value in temporal things. Put value in spiritual things. Then we have the confusing statement. Well, what's right after it? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, either Jesus is having attention deficit problems here and can't maintain a linear train of thought, Or we don't understand what that middle verse means. Do you understand what I'm saying here about culture playing a part of this? That makes no sense to us. Before it, we're talking about temporal and spiritual things. After it, we're talking about temporal and spiritual things, specifically money and God. Anybody want to guess what that middle part might mean then? I bet it has something to do with money and God and spiritual and temporal things. Well, it turns out that in the first century there was an a almost slang kind of saying. It was part of their common vernacular. And because what God's eyes were on throughout all of the Old Testament was taking up the cause of the widow, looking out for the poor, they thought of God as generous. And a man who had his eyes on what God had his eyes on was said to have a good eye. A man that was looking for the opportunity to be generous was said to have a good eye, while a man that was, said to, uh, that was stingy was said to have a bad eye. What do we say to somebody if they make a good shot? Or if they catch a mistake in a document? Or, or they're proofreading something and get something you didn't. We say, wow, good eye. Do we literally mean their eyeball's good? No, we meant they, they, thanks for being meticulous. Read this with that understanding. What you get is the eye is the lamp of the body. He's speaking about an attitude here. If your eyes are good, if you have your eyes on the things God has His eyes on, if you're a generous person, your whole body will be full of light. If you're looking to do the good that God wants to do, then everything about you will be good. But if your eyes are bad, if you're stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great will that darkness be? If you don't have your eyes on the things God has His eyes on, how far and how blind in the darkness will you be? Now, doesn't that make much more sense that He says the next statement, is you can't serve two masters? You you can't serve both God and money? A good eye meant generosity, while a bad eye meant stingy. Now, when we read that in English, that didn't make any sense. But when you understand their view of the law and you couple it with an understanding of culture, all of a sudden, the Scripture begins to be enriching to you. I'm not telling you this because I have access to some kind of secret documents. And like the Vatican, I'm holding... Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Like some church organizations, I'm holding sway over you, trying to keep secret and you have to come to me. What what I'm trying to say is that God revealed this in a certain way. The best thing you can do... Everybody in here has been asking me all week, what books can I read? Show me. Give me a, a, a reading list so I can learn about Hebrew culture. You know what the first book you should start with with is Deuteronomy. Every one of you have it. When's the last time you read Deuteronomy? Help me out. You know there's no book in the Bible that Jesus quoted more than Deuteronomy? But when's the last time you read it? Have we been guilty a little bit of this Greek thought that, oh, well, that was for them, this is for us? I preach from the Old Testament every week because I want to get you familiar with it. The New Testament in your Bible, when you hold it up, takes takes about you know three quarters of an inch in most Bibles, while the Old Testament's about an inch and three quarters. Sixty six books in the Bible, only twenty seven of them are in the New. How much time do you read the New Testament versus the Old? It is all God's instruction. We all on the same page. I want to have an understanding of the law and an understanding of the culture. The best place to get that is out of the Bible. When you can't find what you need there then begin to examine other sources and I'll be happy to give you a reading list. But first, let's read the, at the very least Pentateuch, then you can move on to the prophets if you like. Okay? Now, with that in mind, what do most people know about a census from a biblical standpoint? From a biblical standpoint, tell me something that happened with a census. Mm, we're hushed. David took a census. That's the one people usually remember. There, the... There's only one, two, three, only four censuses that I can remember mentioned in the Bible. Okay? David's is number three. Uh, the fourth was Solomon. Solomon did it after David. But what was wrong with David's census? What happened? God got upset, huh? In 1 Chronicles 21 and in 2 Samuel 24, you see David's census. It's really confusing to some people because. The Bible speaks about the exact same event with almost the exact same words, except one time it says the Lord incited David, and another time it says Satan. And that's usually all anybody remembers about the census. Uh, Has anybody in common speech heard that George Bush did something bad at Abu Ghraib? Or George Bush made a mistake uh, in Iraq? Or that uh, Bill Clinton did something in Kosovo? Anybody ever heard that? Bill Clinton didn't pick up a rifle in Kosovo and George Bush probably never been to Abu Ghraib. Why do we say that? Because people working under their control did those things. That's why Chronicles and Samuel record it that way. So what do you mean? Satan was under God's control? Stick with me in the book of John and I will teach you when he fell out of the heavenly kingdom. He was rebellious long before he was kicked out. Without going into that. Most people know about David's census. Any others that you can think of? There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. What's that next book? What is a census? When you number people, right? So do you think that there's at least one census in the book of Numbers? Oh, yeah. If we understand the law, you'd have some thought about what census is since an entire book is dedicated to census, right? But that didn't come up in our thoughts right away, did it? What did come up in our thoughts right away? Oh, there was a census in the time of Augustus Caesar written about in the book of Luke. Now, why would you have known about the one that is one line in the book of Luke, but not know about an entire book that is a census? That just didn't occur to you. I understand. But if you were meditating on this day and night like David said to do, If you were thinking about the Word of God as the law of God and putting it in your heart and wanting that all of the time and not thinking about it as two separate divisions, it might have occurred to you sooner, right? Maybe. Okay. So what most people know about the law is that Numbers is a book about a census. You might know that in Numbers 14, immediately after the census was, was given, the people didn't do so well, and God said, everybody that was counted in the census is going to die in the desert. That's the time it wouldn't be good to be in the census. Why count them and then kill them? Hmm. Confusing, huh? I wonder if we'll learn something today about a census that will help that. Why was David's census a bad thing? Why did God get angry? I wonder if we might learn something today from the law and from Hebrew culture that will... Make that make sense. Hmm. Y'all ready? Y'all want to learn about the census? Yeah. I've got about 20 minutes to teach you about the census, but I can do it. The times the census are mentioned in the Scripture seem insignificant unless you know how God said to do a census. And where would God have written about how to do a census? In His law, Right? Can anything good come from us reading the law, I wonder? Well, let's read it and see. Turn to Exodus 30. Sorry, this is one of those kind of messages that requires you to pay attention the whole time to understand. (laughs) I'm just picking. You guys are wonderful, especially for putting up with my foolishness. Judah, there's going to be a test, buddy. You better pay attention. I can't wait till your little... Gabe woke you up too early. I feel so sad for you, son. I can't wait for Judah's reading to catch up his vocabulary and all to where he can really read the Scripture the way that he wants to, because I think he's going to fall in love with it from an early age. Y'all, in Exodus 30, this is on page 96. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them each one must pay the lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted then no plague will come on them when you number them each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel with weights i'm sorry which weighs 20 gerahs the half shekel is an offering to the lord all who cross over Those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. Wow, we just got visited by angels. Hey, Lynn, Christy. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less than when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord making atonement for your lives. God made a provision for how you take a census. And basically what He said is, I want you to group everybody right here. And then, as you count them, and one crosses from this side to the other side, he must pay a shekel. If he's rich, he doesn't pay more than this half shekel. And if he's poor, he doesn't pay more. It will be the same price for rich and poor who need to be redeemed of the Lord. Now, when we read Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 earlier, you remember? There was a theme. You remember what that little jingle was? Scattered, gathered, and redeemed. A recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. First He scattered them. Then He gathered them. And then He redeemed them. In a census, what you did is you put everybody on one side. One at a time, you moved them over. And as each one moved, He had to be redeemed with a half shekel. Now Ezekiel or rather Exodus 28 tells us something about the half shekel though. You know what it was made of? Silver. Silver's always the metal of redemption in the Bible. So, well why on earth are you telling me all of this? Why would it be important to know that there's a group of people over here that are under a plague and are under death that need to cross over here into those numbered as righteous and to get from there to here a ransom? had to be paid. Why would the Old Testament have a theme over and over and over? First He scattered them, then He gathered them, and then He redeemed them. Might it be because the Word of God would show up one day in the Jewish culture that we're studying that they would know about this census because it happened every time the government of Israel wanted to do a census, that they were familiar with a price being paid as they were numbered so that when we get to John 5... Y'all can turn there. and the Jewish Messiah was standing in front of you, and He said, on page 1182 in your Thompson chain, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So far, so good, right? Watch here. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has, what's that word? He has crossed over from death to life. Every time the nation of Israel had a tax time, if you will, every time that a monarch, every time that the prophet, every time that God wanted His people to be counted, He organized them into groups. And as you crossed from the side that was under a plague and under death, Exodus said, into the side where you were numbered with the righteous, numbered with those that were alive, a ransom had to be paid. It was a half shekel of silver. This had been being done for 1600 years by the time Jesus got there. So that when He stood up and He said, hey, the Father's given me all judgment. He's entrusted me with everything. I'm telling you, if you will hear my words, if you will believe Him who sent me, you will cross over. You thought Crossing Over was a show with Jonathan Edwards, a satanic show on uh, cable TV, huh? A medium channeling. Crossing Over was what the Jews called their census. They crossed from death to life and Jesus was saying, I'm the guy who will pay that ransom for you. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, it's the same price for all of you and I am that ransom. The New Covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31 said that they would be scattered, gathered, and redeemed, and God would put His law on their hearts. If you want to begin to understand the Word, if you want to dig deep into the principles of God, it has to be grounded in God's instruction in His law. It has to be. And the more that's done, the more when you're reading the New Testament, which is the Old Revealed, you will understand it more. When you see those words crossed over, you'll think... What did Moses tell them they had to do every year? In fact, you find out every firstborn male had to be redeemed when it was born. If you didn't redeem it, it had its neck broken. And things could only be redeemed with silver. Isn't that interesting? Patricia, that was firstborn male of the livestock. Nobody hurt babies. So why then did David sin so badly? Why take a, a census in the book of Numbers? We're going to close. I just wanted you to know. Why is the book of Numbers written about a census then? If a census was taking Israel, numbering them from death into life so that what was left were all those that had been redeemed, what you had in Israel after a census was taken were those that a price had been paid. They had been chosen by God. A price had been paid and they were considered redeemed. In other words, they belonged to God. This is why that occurs in Numbers 1 and in Numbers 14. He says, man... I paid a price for you. You're mine. And although I chose you, you're going to die in the desert. Every one of you that was counted in the census, he says in Numbers 14, is going to die because you didn't trust Me. This is why the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. A price has been paid for you. You may dwell in those or be numbered with those that have been counted in God's census in the righteous, but if you do not live in faith, you are not safe. That's what that's teaching. Well, why David? Why was David's census such a bad thing? David's census was simply to know how many fighting men he had. That was not the purpose of a census. God had a census for one reason. He wanted to show those that had been redeemed and bought by him. That was the purpose for a census. That's why Joab, also a Hebrew, somebody founded in the law, understanding the culture, responded, Oh no, Lord, never. May God multiply your fighting men a thousand times over, but don't do this. Because He knew it was a front to what God's law was trying to teach, which is those that have been counted in God's census were redeemed. That's what Jesus was talking about when He said, if you believe Me, if you believe the One who sent Me, you've crossed over. i paid your price. Isn't that beautiful? This Hebrew root study that we're all doing, it won't change the meaning of a Scripture for you because the Spirit's already showed you what it meant but it will enrich your understanding. If this book is what our life is supposed to be about, if we really do believe it's God's instruction, then we owe it to ourselves to devote the time to understand the context it was written in. And if you've been counted in God's census, if you've stood up and said, I want to be numbered among those that were redeemed, and Jesus paid that price for you, you're in the encampment of the righteous, you better walk by faith because he didn't spare the very first people that ever walked through his census. When they had no faith, their bodies dropped dead in the desert. You have to trust God. You have to live according to faith if you want to be pleasing, whether the price has been paid or not. Y'all stand up and let's pray.